you had to know that if we were going through a sermon series, every book of the Bible, that eventually we were going to come to Song of Solomon. So open your Bibles. I have given warning to those I felt maybe needed to with kids and whatnot. Um, if you still need to dismiss your child to church for kids, then this would be the last, your last opportunity. Um, I will not be vulgar or crude, that's what I've been saying, uh, but I will speak very honestly and openly um, about the, the content of this book. Um, so open your Bibles, if you have them, to Song of Solomon. And I just want to read before we get started here, my notes ready, from Song of Solomon chapter 8. So if you want to turn to the very end of Song of Solomon, I'm going to read starting in verse 6. Hear any more pages turning, so let me read. This is the word of God. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love. Neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. Let's go before the Lord for a prayer of preparation. And as I do, I invite you to pray for me as I preach through Song of Solomon this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we know it is the whole counsel of your word that is for our good, that is able to equip us for every good work, uh, that all of it is living and active, that all of it um, has been breathed out by you, and it's useful for teaching and correcting and rebuke, rebuking and training in righteousness. So Lord, I pray that all these things would be true for us today, and I pray that we would come away with just a greater sense of awe at your design in marriage. And Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I grew up uh, during an era when there was this thing called True Love Waits. True Love Waits was this ministry that had been established, I think, uh, in the early 90s to promote abstinence uh, for teens uh, through, through the church, through local churches. And I think uh, what happened is after a long period in the church, uh, and I mean a really, really long period in the church where sex was not really uh, openly discussed or spoken of. I think in the 1990s, largely in response to the trauma that was felt in this nation because of the sexual revolution, that church leaders began to think maybe it would be a much wiser idea if we actually talked about this more openly and honestly. I mean, after all, this was something being talked about all the time in schools by people who had no biblical worldview, so maybe we should get ahead uh, of the curve on that. So I heard about this topic at youth conferences. This was my experience growing up. In my youth group, we filled out pledge cards, 
pledging our abstinence, true love waits cards. Maybe some of you had that same experience. We even had this really awesome song from a group called DC Talk, which by the way stands for Decent Christian Talk. I'll read you a sampling of it this morning with much trepidation. Safe is the way they say to play. Then again, safe ain't safe at all today. So just wait for the mate that's straight from God. Don't have sex till you tie the knot. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. Once your sex for now. I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it till we take the vow. I even went to a conference when I was a teenager where two of my friends and me purchased T-shirts that said in unmistakable big neon green letters, I'm a virgin and proud of it. And we thought, we thought this was a little bit cheesy, but we, we actually, you know, we're doing this out of sincere uh, desire to be radical followers of Jesus Christ in high school. And I, all of that kind of does make me chuckle today, makes me laugh, but... I would say that these were still means that God used to spare me, really, and to protect me from a lot of the pain and consequences of stirring up and awakening love before its proper time. And so I thank God for DC Talk and that song, as cheesy as it may sound today. Now, that's not to say that I was completely without my own failings in this area as a youth, but... Something I always had a difficult time understanding and explaining as a teenager, even having gone to all those conferences uh, and hearing all those talks, is it was often presented to us strictly as don't do this, as a prohibition. And I'm not saying that's necessarily what, what, what was the intent, but that's kind of what I took from it when I was a kid. And I am by nature a rule follower, so a large motivation for me to wait for marriage, if I'm being honest, was simply to not disappoint my parents and not make my life more complex. Again, still gracious means that God used to spare me a lot of pain. But whenever I would try to explain the why behind waiting and somebody would say, show me in the Bible where it says you shouldn't do this before marriage. I gotta admit, I found it very, artic very difficult to articulate other than saying, don't do it. The Bible says, don't do it. Other than making it seem like just kind of an arbitrary rule, a rule often people think made by God to keep Christians from having fun. And then I would get to thinking, well, if this particular desire for love is so explosive, and I mean, when you turn 13, 14, it feels very explosive, and I can't get married till I'm at least 22, then why would God play such a cruel trick on teenagers? And what about this? What if I never get married? Then what? How am I supposed to be an obedient Christian with this explosive desire within me? And I think these personal experiences of men and women have led many, we all know this, to give up altogether on God's sexual ethic. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, to entertain that thought, well, maybe God is holding out on us. Maybe there's something he doesn't want us to know that's actually for our good. And countless many, we know this, right, have come up with their own ideas about what God really intended for this act to be. Just give you an example here. This was a Pew Research study. Um, I can't remember what year, but it's sometime in the 2000s. Uh, said that 57% of adults identifying as Christians 
say that sex between two consenting unmarried unmarried adults is acceptable. 50%, I don't know if that seems high to you or low to you, but 50% of adults identifying as Christians think that sex outside of marriage is acceptable. Now, this is not meant to be a sermon on the topic of premarital sex, but I bring this up because so many Christians, I believe today, are so, so, so confused about a very powerful, good, and gracious gift from God. And I believe that Song of Solomon is helpful for us to kind of calibrate our minds back to what God intended in order to recover a sound theology of sex. Yes, we need a sound theology of sex. Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, as it's called in the Hebrew, in my experience, is the book of the Bible that Christians would probably label most unsure of what to think about this. I won't say who, but somebody came in the door this morning and said, Pastor, I read through Song of Solomon this week to prepare, and I got to tell you, I don't have a clue what's going on in Song of Solomon. (laughs) But one thing I think you can see pretty easy, starting in chapter one even, is that Song of Solomon is unabashedly celebratory of erotic love. And I'm using that term very technical. Eros type of love. By that I mean what C.S. Lewis means when he describes it. He says, the kind of love that lovers are in. I love that. (laughs) What kind of love are we talking about here? Well, it's the kind of love that lovers are in. Love expressed through sexual desire. And while some of the metaphors are kind of hard to understand without a little knowledge of Hebrew culture, like uh, who's going to tell their wives that their teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes and hair is like a flock of leaping goats? Not good marriage advice for husbands as you go home today. Don't say that. Try to find the way that's translated into modern language before you use that one on your wife. But even though we have some of these really difficult to understand metaphors, the message is still, I think, very clear to us from the beginning with the lover's confession for her beloved, starting in verse, um, I'm reading this, verse 2. Look at what it says there. I'm reading the the tamer parts of Song of Solomon this morning, by the way, so don't worry. Um, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. In another place, it says, Your lips drip nectar. Honey and milk are under your tongue. If I were to read all of Song of Songs out loud today, try as hard as you may, I guarantee at some point along the way, you would not be able to look at me in the eye, and I probably wouldn't want to look at you in the eye. (laughs) Intense words of passion that would make anyone blush. In fact, the type of language in here was so heated and passionate that... Jewish men under the age of 30 were advised by rabbis not to read the Song of Songs. They also held it to believe to be one of the holiest books in their canon, but they said, this is PG-30. Don't even touch it. Don't even touch it until you're ready. And that goes along with the theme, don't stir up or awaken love until the right time. Other difficulties in reading the Song of Songs. 
One is that it's, it is kind of hard to follow. So this is going to be uh, probably less of giving you the summary, more of kind of helping you understand how to read it. Uh, it's, it's hard to follow because we do get the sense that there is lover and beloved, and this man is, is kind of a, a strong shepherd-like person, and, and she is somebody who grew up working the land. She has dark skin. So we have these two characters, but at times it seems like Solomon like asserts himself into the picture, and you're like, wait, this is kind of weird. Why is Solomon coming in between uh, these two lovers? But what is going on there? In the interest of time, uh, what I would just tell you is I, I am most compelled by the reading that sees it like this. There are only two main characters in this, this song, these collection of songs. There are only two lovers. And where you see the name of Solomon showing up, it's really more of a poetic device and an exalted way of, of either describing the man in this poem. As somebody said, every young man is every young man in love is a Solomon in all his glory. Or Solomon shows up to kind of, uh, as a foil, to make a point that the lovers then respond with God's design for marriage. Then we have this other voice throughout Song of Songs, which kind of seems like a cheering section. And this cheering section is is kind of celebrating the love between these two. If you look uh, in verse 4, where it says, others maybe in your translation, they say, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine, rightly do they love you? If you think about that literally, it's going to seem very awkward and creepy that you have a cheering section looking on in this, this intimate relationship. But again, this is more uh, of a poetic way of kind of helping to affirm the beauty and to celebrate God's gift. And if you'll read it like that, I think it'll make a lot more sense. Then lastly, another difficulty would be the issue of relevance, Right? I mean, there's probably a good portion of people here this morning that are thinking like, this can't be relevant. There's there's no way that this can be relevant for me right now just by the nature of my circumstances. How does this apply to me? Especially if I am single or if if the prospect of this expression of love seems to be an impossibility in my current circumstances, how am I to receive this? And and we're going to try to answer that question a little bit towards the end. But throughout the history of the interpretation of this book, I will tell you there have been a wide range of approaches. And so I am going to approach the way I read this very humbly this morning, but it is, it is one that, that is held by many evangelical scholars, Christians uh, today. But the first thing you should know, for the longest time, I mean like all the way up into last century, Song of Songs was treated, well, first, it was treated by Jews as an allegory of God's love for his people Israel. Then, when Christians got a hold of this book, and Jesus, by the way, affirms the canon of the Old Testament in its entirety, so Jesus gives his endorsement to the Song of Songs. When Christians got a hold of it, the early church fathers all the way up to last century really would interpret this book as an allegory for Christ's love for the church. And it gets kind of bizarre. Augustine, St. Augustine, so this would have been like the 400s, he said, Song of Solomon is, is a sort of spiritual rapture experienced by holy souls contemplating the nuptial relationship, that's kind of an old word, the, the marital relationship between Christ the King 
and his queen city, the church. So we know this in the Bible, Christ is the bride, or the bridegroom, the church is the bride. He says, but it is a rapture veiled in allegory to make us yearn for it more ardently and rejoice in the unveiling as the bridegroom comes in to view. So it was all about Christ and the church. Another guy in the 300s, somebody who helped craft the Nicene Creed, Gregory of Nyssa, he explains uh, verse 13, and I'm not going to read this, uh, but he explains verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, The location of the heart is said by experts to lie between the two breasts. Okay, we understand that, the heart right here. Here is where the bride says that she has the sachet in which her treasure is kept. Therefore, the bride has received the good odor of Christ in the governing part of the soul and has made her own heart a kind of sachet for such incense. It's like, whoa, I would have never come up with that. As strange as that may sound to our modern ears today, um, to hear how these early church fathers interpreted Song of Songs, and I, and I said this was for most part up until like just a hundred years ago, by many Bible-believing, intelligent, Jesus-loving, infallibility of the word, affirming Christians, I think it would be just a tad bit arrogant to scoff at that type of reading. And so while I think there is a much plainer sense that we should take from the book of Sol Song of Solomon, um, I think that we should have great respect for the way in which many of these early interpreters understood so much of the mundane world as being metaphors for even greater realities that we should enjoy in Christ. Everything in this life points to some greater reality that we can be enjoying in Christ. So, long introduction, where do I land? I see in the Song of Songs, as I said, many evangelical Christian scholars do as well, that these are meant to be taken simply as a collection of love songs with two main characters, two lovers, who are going to convey to us a very real human experience of the gift of passionate marital love and sexual intimacy. And one of the reasons I believe it to be the case is if you go back to Proverbs 5.19, it tells us to rejoice in our youth uh, the wife of our youth, and to be intoxicated with a particular part of her body. And it means this quite literally. At the same time, we recognize that this both explosive and generous gift of God is something that we must celebrate, cherish, and guard. Celebrate, cherish, and guard. But at the same time, on a deeper level, I do believe that Song of Songs echoes for us an even more profound desire that all of us have for intimacy. And that is to be known and to know someone else perfectly. To be completely exposed and not have to feel ashamed. To have a permanent sense of security in love, knowing that I will always be accepted no matter who I am. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There we go. The two becoming one flesh is a mystery which refers to Christ and the church. Paul says it there himself. 
And this mystery takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when God created the most suitable helper for Adam. God created man. It was not good for man to be alone, so he created woman to be united, to come together as one flesh, to know each other exclusively in the most intimate way anyone could ever know or be known. And let me remind you, there was sex before sin entered the world. Sex came before the fall. There is a good and perfect ideal design to this. And this design of a one flesh union between man and woman, God says is good and beautiful. And God's gift of sex in this context of an unbreakable covenant is intended for us to enjoy, to celebrate, to guard as precious. The author of Hebrews says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That is, anyone who takes the act outside of its designed context of covenant marriage. But then we have this problem. Sin enters the world, right? And as soon as sin enters the world, sexual sin becomes very destructive. The Old Testament is filled with stories of violations of this sacred design. We see it with Noah. We see it with Abraham taking his servant Hagar when he had Sarah. We see it with Lot. We see it with David in the most grievous way you could imagine, the man after God's own heart. And since that time, what I think has happened is one of the consequences of sin entering into that particular aspect of life, sin entering into the world of intimate love in marriage is that our view of this act is so much more often influenced by man's perversions of it than it is by God's purpose for it. I think even the most well-meaning Christian just by living life, going to public schools, being around other people, watching what you watch on TV, we are being influenced the majority of the time by man's perversions of this sacred act than we are by God's plan and purpose for it. So doesn't it make complete sense that he would have a book like Song of Solomon here, lest we forget what this was intended for in the first place? And so I want to give just a few Highlight very high-level points from Song of Solomon, lessons that we can take away from this book that tell us how we should regard and how we should approach and how we should enjoy this type of intimacy. Number one is this. Intimate love is most freely enjoyed when it is enveloped by covenant commitment. Okay, so if this is intimate love... Intimate love is going to be most freely and purely enjoyed if it is in the confines of covenant commitment. There are a few phrases in the Song of Songs that show up uh, two or three times. And one of those, uh, if you look in chapter 2, verse 7, you'll see it for the first time. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. 
or some translations say, until the time is right. We see that in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 5, chapter 8, verse 3, which is saying, this is really important. Do not stir up or awaken love until it is the proper time. When is the proper time? We're going to see the proper time is when God brings two together that can commit wholly of themselves to be united as one flesh to the exclusion of all others. The covenant commitment of marriage. There's another part, Song of Solomon chapter 8, verse 8, which speaks to the same thing. The lovers kind of turn their attention for a little bit to those who are not yet ready for this time of love, and they turn their attention to a little sister, somebody who is completely innocent, a virgin, someone who should not be violated or enter into anything like this. And they say, we have a little sister. She has no breast. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. Which means we are going to guard that in every way that we can. We're going to protect her from anything that could possibly threaten that innocence. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with boards of cedar. So we are going to do everything in our power to maintain that innocence, to protect her until the time is right. And so what's one application for those of us, if even if this is not direct today, it's how we regard the young among us, that we should be doing everything in our power to protect them and guard them from anything that could destroy that and cause a lot of pain. Do not stir up or awaken love till it pleases, till the right time, till the two can come together in covenant commitment. The other aspect of this is that it's an exclusive bond. If it's going to be enjoyed most freely, we have to know, we have to have the security that this is exclusive, that no one else could possibly enter into the picture. And so we have this other phrase that occurs over and over again in Song of Songs. I am my beloved's and he is mine. What is God's design for marriage? I am my beloved's and he is mine. A male and a female exclusively together, forsaking all others. 1 Corinthians 7, 4, Paul says, on giving instructions about marriage and intimacy, he says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Whew. Wouldn't want to say that today. You might get in trouble. But then it says, Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. If you are not ready to give yourself wholly to someone else in this way, then you will not ever be able to enjoy this gift of marriage. Ladies, I would say where there is doubt, I guess young ladies, where there is doubt that he will protect and provide and make sacrifice and cherish you as his own as his own, and cherish your body as his own, or if there is doubt that he or she will forsake others, then there is always going to be a sense of insecurity in that relationship. And this one's for free this morning. If he doesn't love Jesus, if she doesn't love Jesus... Don't touch him or her with a 10-foot pole. All right. Because they can't understand. If they have no desire to submit to this word, they can't have any understanding of what this covenant commitment is all about. Number two, 
Intimate love must be fiercely committed, fiercely underline that, fiercely committed to keeping out intruders. Intimate love must be fiercely committed to keeping out intruders. Immediately preceding the statement in chapter 2, verse 16, my beloved is mine and I am his, we have this. She is saying to him, catch the foxes for us. In our house, it's bunnies, but anything that's going to ruin the garden. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. If you want to enjoy this gift of marriage, guard it against intruders with all your life. The marriage bed must be seen by us as a bed fitted with an anti-theft device. In Song of Songs, the marriage and the marriage bed is pictured for us as this garden or this vineyard. And there are many applications that we can make here, right? Gardens must be cultivated. Gardens must be tended. Gardens bear fruit. Gardens are lovely and aromatic. But there is one particular aspect I want to highlight here, and that is foxes will ruin the garden. So catch the foxes. What are the foxes that can ruin your garden? What are the foxes? Anything that can come between your covenant commitment with your spouse. That's a fox. Anything that could possibly separate that covenant commitment or threaten that covenant commitment with your spouse, that includes prior to meeting your spouse. Anything that you might end up bringing into the marriage that could be a threat to that marriage. Matthew Henry described the foxes like this. He said, this is a charge to believers to mortify their sinful appetites and passions which are as little foxes that destroy their graces and comforts and crush good beginnings. Whatever we find a hindrance to us in that which is good, we must put away. So think of affairs. These could be emotional affairs. And under that category, I would say any type of Expressing something to someone of the opposite sex in confidence that your wife or your husband is not in on. That's how emotional affairs begin, which lead to physical affairs, which threaten the covenant context. Sneaking around online is a major way this happens today. Great advice I received from my parents as a kid. They always told me about the Billy Graham rule. Don't be found alone with a member of the opposite sex both for your own temptation, but also for the perception of outsiders. That's why I have a window on my office door. Um, and that's something I've always guarded. That's why if, if you're within, you know, the 10-year frame, unless it's a really special occasion, you're probably not going to get a hug from me. And I don't mean to be rude, but I love my wife too much to put myself in that position. Those are foxes, potential foxes that could destroy that covenant of marriage. One study had it as high as 56%. This kind of surprised me. But even if, even if we go a little conservative, as high as 56% of marriages ended in divorce cited pornography as being one of the factors. Anything that disconnects this sacred act of marriage from the covenant itself, anything that cheapens the act by treating it casually or by trying to steal pleasures from other places is going to spoil the fruit of the garden God has intended for you. 
And it doesn't just have to be lust for someone else. I mean any sin that could separate. Deceit in marriage. Slothfulness in marriage. Demeaning and angry words in marriage. Emotional manipulation. Allowing others to come in and manipulate your relationships. I've seen this very often with both kids and parents. Ripping that, trying to rip that covenant apart. Could be careers and hobbies that cut off communication because you could become so obsessed with them that you forget that bond that you have, that vow you've made with your husband or wife. Somebody said, and I can't remember which commenter it was, but said, you must, to guys, you must touch the heart and mind of your wife before you touch her body. So anything that's going to disrupt that type of loving communication will eventually threaten the act itself. If you want to have the most celebratory and beautiful one flesh union, catch the foxes. And notice men, who is this addressed to? She's saying it to her beloved. You are the ones who are to take the lead on this. Catch the foxes for us. There can only be free and secure grazing in the garden of love when the foxes are kept out. Number three, it's an easy one. Intimate love is powerful. How many of you need to be told that? (laughs) Intimate love is potent. It's explosive. I like to think of it as a nuclear reactor. That's because, well, one, because I was a nuke. But think about this. A nuclear reactor is powerful. It is life-sustaining. It can propel large ships through the sea, but only if it is contained in its proper place. When a nuclear reactor becomes uncontained and uncontrolled, it becomes a disaster of epic proportions. Consider some of the ways that love is spoken of in this powerful way in Song of Solomon. In chapter 5, verse 1, she is told to drink and be drunk with love. This is encouraged that you could be drunk, drunk with love. It's so powerful. You can be enraptured by it. And we know what Our moms and dads told us when the sparks start flying, there's no stopping it, right? Chapter 5, verse 8, she says, I am sick with love. It's almost like this external force. There is nothing we can do about it Once, once we're in love. I am sick with love. There's two takeaways here, I think. One, that there is a euphoria that God gives us in sensual love that is unparalleled in this world. And this is a good gift to be enjoyed. It's not all about procreation. We should accept the goodness of the pleasure in this. But when it is pursued, either for selfish ends or with no regard for the emotional impact on another person that does not have the benefit of covenant security, it has the potential to be a relational Chernobyl with far-reaching consequences even into future generations. If you don't know what Chernobyl is, ask a neighbor about it. Ask me afterwards. I'll talk to you about Chernobyl. But that's why in chapter 8, verse 6, she says, Set me as a seal upon your heart. I take this to mean, if we are going through with this, I need your promise first that you will set me as a seal, unbreakable seal, on your heart as a seal upon your arm for love is strong as death 
And we know this, love has the power to destroy even unto death, this type of love. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Friends, love is potent. Need I say more? Guard it with your life. Number four, intimate love can never be sold or bought. Intimate love can never be sold or bought. There is no substitute for this type of love, like it can be exchanged as some sort of commodity. If you look in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12, we read Solomon. Here's one of these places where Solomon shows up, and I think it's more poetic than to, to believe this, take this woodenly or literally. Um, Metaphorically, Solomon had a, a vineyard at Baal Hamon. He let out the vineyard to the keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. My vineyard, my very own, now we're talking about marriage bed context, my vineyard, my very own is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand. You can keep your money and the keepers of the fruit 200 Money can't buy love, right? We know this. Certainly not this type of love. It says in in verse 7 of chapter 8, If a man offered love all the wealth of his house for this, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And the reason is because in this act, we are known and we know in an unparalleled way. We are most vulnerable. We are most exposed. There is absolutely nothing to hide. And we are giving ourselves fully to one another. Which is why trying to disconnect the act from the covenant relationship is so harmful and devastating. And why things like pornography, which are, by the way, almost always funded or produced out of some form of human trafficking or slavery. That's why things like pornography or trying to purchase love or take it or steal it from from its intended context will end up rotting your soul and desensitizing you from genuine intimacy. Intimate love cannot be treated as another commodity to be exchanged. Now... All of this talk about the sacred act of marriage and all the attention that I've been giving it this morning, because this is in the Bible and because it's celebrated, maybe you're asking the question, does that mean that I cannot experience the fullness of humanity without being able to experience this? Let that question sit for just a second. But the answer is no. As good of a gift as this is, it still is not the supreme form of intimate knowledge. Even for married Christians, this will not be the highest possible experience of intimate knowledge that we will ever experience in eternity. And we know this in a very kind of obvious way because, well, Jesus was fully human. Jesus did not experience this. We can say the same with Jeremiah, Elijah, John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived, never experienced this. Paul, at least the Paul that we we know, who exhorted singleness, if possible, did not experience this for at least the majority of his ministry. 
So what am I talking about when I'm talking about this higher form of intimate knowledge that we will experience as Christians? Consider the words of David in Psalm 139. O Lord, and this is Yahweh, O Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Your spouse will never be able to know you like that. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It says further down, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. To know God and to be known by God in this way, this is actually the highest pleasure. In all of life, in all of eternal life, this is the highest pleasure. Think about this. To be known by God and to know him in this way, this is the highest possible pleasure. 1 Corinthians 8.3, Paul says, The one who loves God is known by him. So if we understand the gift of intimacy to be representative or symbolic or as a pointer to this highest form of knowing and being known, then it's going to have a few implications for us. First of all, if we understand it's pointing towards something that we will experience in God, then it should cause us to treat this sacred act with the proper reverence for God's design. Think about the implications for intimacy with your spouse if you're thinking about it in this way. How is, how is God's love for us? Self-giving, honest, protective, gentle, celebratory. It builds us up. It doesn't tear us down, and it's always exclusive. Can you imagine if God cheated on us? If Jesus cheated on us and said, no, I, I was going to go to the cross, but I've been pulled in this other direction. That should inform the way we think about this sacred act in marriage. But also, if we understand the gift of intimacy to be symbolic of this highest form of knowing and being known, we can understand how it is possible for a human to still thrive when sex is either not yet an option or no longer an option or never will be an option. What we must never do, and we get this from Song of Solomon, what we must never do is try to awaken it where it is not meant to be awakened. To profane the pure, to, desort, to distort his design, to hijack the act from the Christ-displaying covenant will never bring you the satisfaction you may think it will. Which also tells us that it cannot be enjoyed in the way it's intended by a man and a man, by a woman and a woman, by having multiple partners, by treating it casually before or outside of the covenant context, remember what it's a signpost to in the first place, the greater reality of the bride being united with the bridegroom. So any perversion from that act is actually desecration of that picture that we're supposed to be putting on display as Christians for a watching world. 
We know that Christ will never leave us nor forsake us. Christ knows everything about us, all our guilt and our shame and our ugliest scars. He knows all of it. And yet, what does he do? When we put our trust in him, he accepts us and makes us his own. That's, that's beautiful. And that's, that's the model for what intimacy and marriage should be like. And because of him, we can also say this. And I think this is important to address in any crowd living in this day and age, particularly where we are, if you have in your past violated this design, abused God's intended purpose for marriage, or if you have been a victim of sexual sin and abuse, that's not the end of the story for you. Your Life and I would say your love life are not beyond the redemption that Christ can bring. We know this in one way because of the story of the woman at the well who had not one, not two, not three, not four, not five husbands. She had five husbands, but there was another one living back at home that was not her husband, living completely contrary to God's design for marriage. And we don't know how she ended up there. She might have been a victim in many ways. But what did Jesus do? He came alongside her. He didn't shy away from calling out the sin, right? He confronted her with the sin. And then he offered her living water that will satisfy her eternally so that she will never need to look for satisfaction through this act. He redeemed her, he accepted her, and she knew that she was known by him. And what did she do when she went out to evangelize? She said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Come see a man who knows me better than anyone could possibly ever know me, and he accepts me. Christ can heal the wounds that are brought about by sexual sin, just as he can heal any other wounds from any other sin, because the one who knows every hair on our heads, every scar on our body, has already gone before us and covered our shame for those who will seek refuge in him. And as believers who understand this type of intimate knowledge between Christ, the bridegroom, and his bride, the church, it makes the marriage bed redeemable too. So in review, intimate love is good. It's part of God's good and perfect design. It is to be cherished and celebrated. Celebrated. It is to be enjoyed, but enjoyed only in the context of a covenant commitment. Intimate love fiercely keeps the intruders out. Catch the foxes. Intimate love is powerful like a nuclear reactor, so guard it with your life. Intimate love cannot be bought or sold. Intimate love is a signpost to an even greater pleasure, to know and to be known by God himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Song of Solomon. Amen? Amen. Amen.